The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Tonight we're going to be talking about UFOs. We've got two guests, one on in each hour, and both of them are UFO experts. The first part of our program, Peter Robbins will be with us. He's an investigative writer and an author. We'll be talking about all of the things that he's researched and reported on and spoken about. He speaks at UFO conferences around the world, and uh, he's got a lot of information. So I'm looking forward to having the conversation with him today. Absolutely. In the second hour, we're talking with Matthew Serba, a professor, and we'll be discussing the Carbondale UFO incident and uh, also testimonies on it. And that's a rather interesting UFO claim and some weird things a lot of mixed uh, mixed information out there so it'll be nice to get a lot of the uh, well just information directly from him find out what's accurate and what's not so hey if you haven't yet head over to facebook.com slash beyond reality radio and like that facebook page for us then head to beyondrealityradio.com. you can find all the stations we are on across the country you can also download the smartphone apps uh, for your tablets or your phones and that allows you to listen live catch past shows Join the online chat and more, and you can do that all on the go. Or any night you want, listen live right from the website. Just click the Listen Live tab or the Listen Live and Chat tab, and you can listen right at the website while browsing the Internet. If you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, just do us a favor and rate it for us. Helps push it forward and makes it easier for people to find, and that's what it's all about. And I know a lot of people are already, you know, they're focused on Halloween, of course, um, but at the same time, Christmas is not around, not too far around the corner. Oh, and shut up. I know, I know. Um, well, you know what makes a really great gift is a Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug. It <laughs> looks great under the tree. When you open it, if you have a, some coffee ready to go, pour it right in there. I, I don't think there's any better way that you can uh, you can give a gift to the person that you care about than doing it that way. Have the, have the mug and then pour the coffee right after they open it. It's perfect. It looks great in your hand sitting in front of the tree. Oh, you could take in those, those fireplace. Those selfies will go viral. <laughs> they definitely will. And you can find the Beyond Reality Radio uh, coffee mug on the website. Just go to beyondrealityradio.com. All right, so let's go to break. And when we come back, we'll bring our first guest of the evening in. Peter Robbins will start talking about UFOs. All right, you're listening to Jason and JV, Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right now, it's time to welcome our first guest of the evening. Peter Robbins is an investigative writer and an author with a lot of experience in investigating and reporting on and writing about and speaking about UFO incidents around the world. And we welcome uh, Peter to the program. Great to have you on Beyond Reality Radio. Oh, it's great to be back. Oh, thanks for coming on again. All right, so let's talk about um, how you got started with this, Peter. At what point did the, this whole UFO phenomena uh, bug bite you like it's bitten so many of us? <laughs> ah, great question. Uh, in my case, um, I grew up without absolutely any interest in the subject whatsoever, uh, consciously anyway. And um, I had my sights set early on a career in the arts. I was a fairly gifted young painter and could draw very well, and uh, ended up at New York City School of Visual Arts, where uh, I graduated uh, with a degree in uh, painting and film history, taught there, um, was living the life of an aspiring young New York painter downtown, when uh, in my late 20s, one afternoon, <clears throat> for a series of reasons, Jason, that I can get into, um, I think I understand well enough <clears throat> but for a series of reasons, a memory from childhood that I had repressed returned. I, I joke with people sometimes that I have, if I have any other repressed memories from childhood, I don't remember them. Um, but this one was very deeply buried, and it sprang forth like nobody's business. And it was um, um, a memory of a very clear daylight sighting um, of five silvery-white disc-shaped objects, which I observed with my sister Helen. 
<clears throat> in front of the house that we grew up in uh, on Long Island, uh, about 30 miles east of uh, New York City. And it was um, it was quite shattering for me. I was an adolescent. Uh, it was a much more innocent time in the 60s. Um, <clears throat> I My take on UFOs was from black and white movies mostly and, you know, bad science fiction. Um, I guess I intuited uh, the adult message that they weren't real and, you know, they were fun to uh, have as part of your your fantasy and science fiction. But there they were, and uh, it was a clear daylight sighting. They were all elliptical shaped. They were metallic. There was, and I have to stress, absolutely no ambiguity. They were in a V, as in Victor formation, like military aircraft would fly, and they came in at a very high rate of speed. And I caught them out of my right peripheral vision, <clears throat> called my sister's attention to it immediately, and we looked and looked and looked and looked. Um, I have since chronicled hundreds of other accounts like this from people all over the country and all over the world. And um, I went through a reaction that I uh, have documented and many other people. I've come to call it the checklist reaction. You're minding your own business. You look up, and there it is or there they are. And your logical mind kind of reels off a list of all the things that they're not. Um, not airplanes, kites, balloons, blimps, helicopters, strange-shaped clouds, reflections from the ground, birds. It's, holy hell, look at that. We could actually make out what we could only um, characterize as windows on them. They, they were that clear. And um, it went on for several minutes, which was forever, <clears throat> especially in kid time. And... Um, I, I was overcome. I either was knocked out or passed out. And um, when I came to, uh, they were gone. My sister wasn't there. She uh, was in the house, up in her bedroom. I decided to leave her alone. I told my mom what we had seen. My mom, who we discussed this with years um, this was not a subject that was in the popular culture. Uh, there was a book probably out there in Betty and Barney Hill and not much else relative to the abduction phenomena. Um, and my life changed overnight, and I became so obsessed with the subject and more to the point, what had happened to my sister and what had we seen and what did it represent and what were the implications that although I continued to draw and paint and teach painting and show my work, over the next years, my art career slowly derailed and I began to do what I ended up doing all these years, uh, writing, researching, investigating, uh, speaking on the subject, consulting, and doing radio shows. Why is it that this topic carries such a stigma? It seems like everybody who has got any sense of curiosity whatsoever would want to get to the truth, be a bit open-minded about the idea. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say in a universe where there are billions and billions of galaxies and multiply that times the number of solar systems and then times the number of planets, that there's another uh, civilized uh, race out there somewhere. I mean, I don't understand why that's such a stretch. I, 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 I love that question because it's so important to me and because I've spent so much of my life addressing it uh, and what I call the ridicule factor and the birth of the ridicule factor. The way I see it, it's so counterintuitive. What we're talking about here is when you boil all of citing reports down and the whole way that our culture has traditionally dealed with it, deals with this, although it's getting a little healthier each year, um, if I say to somebody, I saw something in the sky that I, I didn't recognize. I had never seen anything quite like it before. Perfectly interesting question, perfectly mm, rational question, um, nothing weird about it. How is it that those words or variations on it and just the idea, people see your mouth moving, but they are so deeply conditioned that they will many people, uh, going back now three generations, will say to themselves at least, what's wrong with Peter? Um, does he have a mental problem? Does he want to fool me? Does he want to be famous? Is he some kind of strange mystic? Um, 
is this a way that he thinks he can get money, uh, my favorite? He, does he want to feel special? None of these responses make the least bit of sense. The uh, healthy human response would be, gosh, I wonder what it was, too. End of story. How did it happen? Well, um, you're talking to somebody who spent years literally investigating this question, and it all drives back to the summer of 1947, um, a summer profoundly important in the study of the UFO phenomena, as many of your listeners know, because it was that summer that the uh, so-called modern age of UFOs burst on the scene with two specific events and then countless others, um, a sighting by a private pilot, um, Kenneth Arnold, in uh, Washington State on June 24, 1947, uh, which he reported um, to reporters at an uh, airport where he landed his private plane, <clears throat> who were there trying to pick up details of a story of a missing plane. And that story went out on the wire services, and a question that was asked was to describe it. And he said it was like a stone skipping over the water, if you've you know done that as kids or as adults. And somebody drew the equation with a saucer. And then a saucer was funnier than stone, and a flying saucer, well, that's even funnier. And then a week, a week and a half later, something, possibly two things, went down during a thunderstorm some miles outside of a town in New Mexico called Roswell. Why there? <clears throat> Why would they be drawn to that area? Um, any historian can tell you that in the summer of 1947, there was only one nuclear strike force in the entire world. It was the 509th Bomb Wing, which was stationed at the Roswell Army Air Corps airfield. And um, hence, that is where history begins on this subject. But that summer, the news media, which at the time consisted of newspapers and, to a degree, radio news, began a ferocious campaign whether or not it was um, spontaneously generated uh, or that there was some collusion or part of a greater plan. Um, it was led by the most powerful newspapers in the country. Uh, my focus was the New York Times, and you're speaking to somebody who has read, uh, printed out, uh, gone over, and repeatedly organized and uh, look for patterns of every single article, <clears throat> headline, uh, caption, letter to the editor, uh, editorial that the New York Times has ever published on the subject of UFOs, flying saucers, unidentified aerial disks. And this is a serious newspaper. However, 97%, I'm going to just grab that figure out of the air, of their coverage, whether it's some little paragraph tucked away on page 18 or a front page story, is condescending, sarcastic, um, asking you to accept absolutely ludicrous, insulting, pseudoscience, everything from reflections of car lights on low-hanging clouds to uh, swamp gas, weather formations, um, mass panic, and dust on the eyelids, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, and they slugged away at it almost every day through that summer. But quite honestly, if you immerse yourself in this coverage, by the end of July of 1947, the fix was in, and the American public had bought it. Whatever it was, it wasn't that. It was Soviet tests of missiles. It was... Uh, again, war jitters, concern about the Soviets, um, are testing V-2 rockets, uh, mass projections of anxiety, but it certainly didn't represent in any way, shape, or form uh, machines of advanced origin from parts unknown. Well, and do you think that the government is act well is in cohorts with those major newspapers to make sure that they kind of put the whole crackpot idea out there? Anybody who thinks it's a it's an alien spaceship or anybody is automatically sort of blacklisted as a crackpot. Yeah, um, it may have been. 
It may have been. I'm not going to jump the gun and say it definitely was. However, <clears throat> it makes sense. More to the point, um, at the highest levels of our government in the Truman administration, in our young intelligence community, in our more established military intelligence community, um, we we were concerned that it might be just that machines of undetermined origin from parts unknown under intelligent control coming and going with impunity and i i theorize i can't prove this but a lot of circumstantial evidence points me to the following and i've used it as a conclusion in many talks over the years that a certain individual or individuals um, left Washington uh, in early July and made day trips, uh, maybe staying overnight in Washington, I'm sorry, in New York, in Boston, uh, in San Francisco, where important members of the Truman administration met with senior publishers of newspapers and owners. These would have been, um, you know, the... Uh, the Internet billionaires of their day, uh, rich white guys like William Randolph Hearst, um, the uh, trying to remember the name of the family that owned the New York Times, um, uh, the Copley Syndicate in Boston, and sat down with <clears throat> this key individual and said one or two things. Um, of course, you're aware of this crazy, you know, uh, stuff coming out of. Uh, originally, you know, the Northwest, and now uh, out of New Mexico, and people reporting they're seeing these things. They think they're, you know, Martian machines. Uh, look, you know, we're, we've got enough on our plate this summer. The Soviets are drawing the lines hard. They are going to be our next big enemy. We are concerned about war. They might get the bomb. What we need from you, it would be, we'd consider it, you know, a, a patriotic favor, um, is instruct your editors, to instruct your reporters to keep it light, to have a little fun with the subject, to build up a cultural appreciation that this isn't that. We all remember what happened in 1938 with the Orson Welles broadcast and how that freaked out a lot of people. And I'll tell you, you know, there are people in Washington that will remember this, and thank you very much. Or, or in certain cases, especially with some of these um, extremely wealthy and powerful uh, individuals who were in their own way patriots. This was a simpler time. Uh, they may have been very self-involved millionaires, but um, they loved their country. And they may have been told a version of the truth and then asked, uh, you know, the president would very much appreciate it if you would handle this subject in a kind of condescending way. The last thing we need is people even thinking this is a possibility right now, we're studying it, you know, we're doing our best to get our head wrapped around it, the president will remember this. I think one of those two things happened, and that things followed uh, in kind, and that it was not only successful, it was successful beyond anybody's measure. Here we are, um, <laughs> all these years later, uh, more than 70 years later, we're Part of the public, a very healthy percentage, certainly still probably the majority, um, feel that the subject is probably nonsense. Or if it's true, <clears throat> there's no evidence. Of course, they're not looking at the evidence. And you made a very good point earlier that with the countless number of Earth-sized planets about the same distance from sun-sized stars, and they are in the millions, and that's a modest figure, even the most conservative um, astronomers and space scientists begrudgingly have to admit that the chemistry uh, for the basic building blocks of life, or if you're a person of faith, the basics for the miracle of life um, on uh, some, you know, um, huge rock rolling through the universe, you know, a billion light years away or a hundred light years away or around the corner is there. And of course we're not alone. Of course we're not alone. That for me represents the highest level of human arrogance. <clears throat> However, when we get into folks telling us every kind of alien that's out there and, you know, what the Pleiadians have for dinner right. and exactly, you know, who on earth is really a reptilian in a uh, you know latex suit 
that's where you lose me. I'm I'm fairly plotting and well. When you talk when you talk about the numbers that the universe presents, you're, you you get to the point where you're talking about a, a, a million monkeys with a million typewriters. Eventually, one's going to produce War and Peace. And, uh, you know, that's just the way the, the statistics will work. Um, Roswell, which really is kind of the holy grail of uh, UFO events at this point, is 71 years old. Uh, it happened 71 years ago, if my math is right. Um, has there been anything since that has come close to matching that event? And if not, why? Um, yeah, I, I think quite a number of events, um, but... Um they differ so much. Um, Roswell touches a certain nerve, uh, nostalgia. It's the one that set uh, it, the subject in motion in popular culture as well as a, a serious uh, area for scientific uh, and related studies. Um, off the top of my head, um, the Travis Walton incident of November 1975, um, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction of 1961. Um, the so-called incident at Exeter in Exeter, uh, New Hampshire, uh, an extraordinary sighting, very well documented um, in the 60s. Um, Robert Salas, uh, a, uh, a, a remarkable guy who was uh, Air Force in uh, the 1960s, was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base. Um, I think that's in South Dakota. Gosh, I forget. But he was in charge of um, a number of nuclear ICBMs at a time when, um, um, you know, he's underground with them and his team, and they're getting reports, they're hearing them uh, on uh, their uh, um, loudspeakers, so to say, um, of UFOs coming in over the base. And he watches as one by one, the nuclear weapons are shut down with no uh, mechanical failure and no explanation except that it was done uh, by some power of these um, these craft. There are a number of outstanding nuclear UFO incidents documented in Robert Hastings' fine book, uh, UFOs and Nukes. Um, another incident um, is the so-called Brooklyn Bridge UFO abductions, uh, brilliantly documented by Bud Hopkins. Uh, one of the other best abduction cases for me <clears throat> is that of a woman named um, Debbie Jordan, who remains a good friend of mine, uh, in, well documented in a book um, that was published in 1987 uh, called Intruders. And that same year, another very important case um, came to the fore and was brilliantly documented by the person that it happened to, that being um, the former fiction writer, uh, Whitley Strieber, uh, in his book, Communion. Um, there are others as well, but um, I, I think once one immerses oneself into the work as a serious student, um, other cases, for lack of a better term, um, make their way into your consciousness with tremendous impact. You brought up Travis Walton. You brought up uh, the Hill case. Um, these yes. are abduction cases, obviously very, very well-known abduction cases. Yeah. Um, have they stood the test of time? Uh, you know, every time we have one of these cases, there's controversy associated with them. And I've met Travis Walton, a uh, very credible individual. His story yeah. seems to be very credible to me. Uh, but what's your what's your opinion, and what do you hear in the circles of these discussions? Well, um, in terms of the two cases that you've singled out, Betty and Barney Hill and Travis Walton, not only for me as um, a scholar in this matter and somebody who has been out in the field and in these two cases has been, if not active as a researcher, has visited the locations, has spent uh, uh, quite a lot of time with Kathleen Martin, Betty and Barney's niece, uh, has um walked the walk of where all these events happened, has seen the evidence. Uh, as far as Travis goes, um, he is a close and dear friend uh, over the past years. When I first heard him speak about 20 years ago, I was just like a, a nervous fanboy. I mean, he, um, he does radiate integrity, and um, wild as his claims sounded, he presented uh, a very credible um, witness 
to the public. Uh, I got so interested in the case that um, I read everything there was on it, of course, gobbled up his book once it came out, Fire in the Sky, um, helped Travis organize his first conference, has been out to the site where he was abducted with him, uh, has met other witnesses who were there with him when it happened, and I'm very proud to say I'm an associate producer <clears throat> of uh, an outstanding documentary called Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, made by a wonderful filmmaker named Jennifer Stein. Um, took five years to do. It's a as fine a UFO documentary as we have, and more important, it presents all of the scientific evidence along with um, the uh, psychological evidence, with FBI evaluations, with um, analysis of the voices uh, of the polygraph tests that were taken and retaken by the men involved. These two tests not only stand the test of time, um, but if one, as far as I'm concerned, could take such matters into a court of law, these would be two of the cases that could turn things around. I'll also add um, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident case uh, that happened in the United Kingdom in December 1980 and involved quite a number of military witnesses, Air Force personnel, American Air Force personnel. Uh, a lot of people uh, have a strong association of me with this case. Um, the fact is, as, as some of your listeners know, uh, my co-author on uh, a book called Left at Escape turned out to have fabricated a fair amount of the information in his account, which was a shame, and that book is no longer in print, uh, nor are the other books that I have written on Rendlesham. However, um, you can take him out of the picture, and you still have one of the most important and best documented UFO incidents in history. Uh, sadly, Peter, uh, we're out of time, uh, given the the problems we had earlier. Uh, our discussions yeah. cut a little bit short, and I know that you wanted to, um, you know, you have some stuff going on as well. Um, I do. I, I also wanted to say um, uh, I'm happy to come back and do a, a full stint uh, on a future show. But as you know, right now, uh, I'm just not, I'm not able to tonight. No, and we totally understand that. We yep. and we definitely going to take you up on that offer. So you have okay. a great great night, and thanks for so much for coming on. Well, my pleasure, and you guys are great interviewers, and I'm sorry I can't stay on longer. Knock them dead. Have a great second half of the show, and we'll be in touch. And oh, thanks. Stop by Peter's website. It's PeterRobbinsNY, as in New York, dot com. You know, a lot of people have these encounters. A lot of people see these things in the sky. They're not really sure what it is, which is the whole basis for UFO. Um, but it's more common than most people would believe. And a lot of folks just don't like to tell the stories. They get a little concerned they're going to be ridiculed for it. Well, and that's that's the, the biggest problem is they feel like they're going to be made fun of or ridiculed. And, uh, but, and a lot of that starts with the media and the government and the way that they've really pushed, pushed that belief system. And what I had brought up earlier to Peter was uh, the whole thing about the government uh, controlling the media and trying to make a mockery out of the whole thing. And there's proof. I mean, the government did. It was Project Mockingbird. Anybody who wants to look it up, where the government was running the media. They were telling the media what uh, what stories to put out there for people. And, and and all that information's been released now. But it just goes to show that that does happen. All right, so our, our guest for the rest of the program is Matthew Serba. He is uh, looked has looked into the Carbondale UFO in- incident, and we're going to be talking about that, and hopefully Matthew's there. Are you with us, Matthew? Hello? Yeah. Hey. Great hey, to have you. Welcome hey, to the guys, show. Hey, guys, how are we doing? Good. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you. Let's start by uh, telling us exactly what the Carbondale UFO incident was. Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, the the story of the Carbondale UFO. I mean, it has a couple sides to it, and of course, every UFO story does have two sides, maybe a neutral side. But uh, just to kind of give you an idea here, especially for the uh, the audience that's listening in, Carbondale's a city located in northeastern PA, uh, approximately about eighty six hundred people, about twenty to twenty five minutes outside of Scranton. So again, just to give them a geographic location there. And at one point, Carbondale was pretty popular. I mean, it was, a, it was a booming town, a lot of things to do. The atmosphere is completely different today. I mean, it doesn't compare to, like, what they've explained it about in the 50s, the 60s, or the 70s. But, uh, yeah, the UFO incident that I'm talking about, 
Um, I I would always say it's probably one of the most popular that you would probably find, maybe from articles, maybe from other lectures, or possibly from other sources of uh, media that do relate to the northeastern Pennsylvania region. And uh, I think probably one of the most famous, and if it probably is the famous, is probably Kecksburg. So I would probably put Carbondale just in that category of popularity. Are you saying but, uh, that you're saying it's one of the most famous for Northeast Pennsylvania, or you mean in all of UFO reportings or reports? I would probably say just for our Northeastern region. I okay. mean, there's probably a lot more popular stories out there, heavier than the Carbondale UFO incident. But again, just for our view, our, you know, our area, because um, again, I'm speaking from a local standpoint. I mean, this was a pretty big incident that was always talked about through years, and it was always on and off. And again, I mean, the testimonies, they, they remain to be consistent. Okay. And you want to uh, explain to us exactly the story. I know back in 1974 this happened, correct? Yep. Yeah, November 9th, 1974, that was the initial start, and uh, that was where really the report of activity happened. And what I collected from various resources uh, from an investigation standpoint were responses uh, through interview, through survey, and Pretty much what the uh, the ballpark figure is here, it's uh, a span of 48 hours. So we're talking about two to three days uh, of activity. And the story starts with several teenage boys from Carbondale. Uh, they were around the Russell Park area, which is also located in Carbondale, PA. Uh, they reported that they saw a fast-moving object that fell from the sky and came down into the pond. So, in fact, what they described, um, it was a little bit more thorough because they were actually able to see where this object was coming from. And it was over in the western region uh, over Salem Mountain, which is kind of close to our area, Salem, Archibald. Um, Again, it all connects, and it's close to that Carbondale central point. And it was coming down at such a low altitude, I mean, it was an obvious spot for them. So the teenagers began spreading word. And, uh, of course, the town is getting hype of it. And eventually word spreads out through other towns uh, within the counties near Carbondale. And even the word makes some parts to New York and New Jersey. Um, just to go a little bit more deeper into it, uh, report of the teenagers, uh, it's followed up by the cops, that which leads them over to Russell Park. Carbondale uh, Police Department are able to confirm that they do see a glowing light coming from the water, which was described from the teenagers. And one of the biggest descriptions was, uh, for the pond, they always, and I mean, the locals could probably go back to uh, describing the pond at Russell Park. It was murky, it was brown, it was dirty. I mean, that's probably due to so much silt that was in that area. That's probably caused the coloring of the water, but the light was very visible. So cops are reported. Uh, they're at the incident. They move on to the scene, and uh, the police do confirm that they did see the light, and it was at the very bottom of the pond. Of course, there was no visibility to actually see, like, a shape of object or uh, a detail of maybe some type of item, but definitely something visible, and it was light-based. And, of course, uh, the witnesses at the scene, there's a couple things that, uh, and, of course, this comes with a lot of different testimonies. I mean, you'll hear one thing and then another. But some do confirm that police did fire shots into the water. Some have said that that never happened. And yeah, again, that seems that seems definitely. That, that, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, that that definitely seems a little out there for them just to randomly fire shots into the water. Let me ask this because I, we got to take a break in about a minute, though. Yeah, no How deep was that water where this thing, where this light was emanating from? Well, I mean, from my from my guesses, I mean, if they had a diver come in, because that's going to be a little bit more part of the story where they have a diver come in from Binghamton. I mean, we we have to be talking about a pretty good depth in order to retrieve or see what was actually in the water. So I would probably say it's, it's probably definitely over a 10-foot uh, distance. Okay, and 10 feet really isn't that deep. So, No, if you really think about it, that's a pretty good point. And I have to ask, to pick up on the point that Jason just made, I mean, do you believe the, the, the reports that the police were shooting into the water? I mean, unless they felt threatened, I don't understand why they would have done that. I mean, 1974, I mean, it's a different time. Um, I'm not saying that's an influence of different action, but um, again, it, 
from testimonies, I mean, I guess the, one, let me, person, let me, says, uh, just, one person says the other, and then the other says another thing. Matthew, just because um, we have to go to I break. Mean, I, I, probably, I probably would say that I, I'm not a believer of the shots being fired into okay. the water. I just right. don't think a cop but, would... Um, Matthew, just just randomly, yeah, just randomly. Matthew, the uh, my bigger question here is that if shots were fired, Mm -hmm. they must have felt threatened. So, do you have any? And in the ten seconds we've got here, do you have any sense that anybody was threatened at that point? I think there was some paranoid feelings. Matthew, I want to jump to the phone lines. We've had some people waiting on hold that want to kind of join this discussion. So let's go to Ed, who's also in Pennsylvania. Ed, are you near the Wilkesbury, Scranton slash Carbondale area? Well, it's probably uh, uh, 20, about 20 minutes from Scranton. Scranton's about, I guess, 15, 20 minutes from Carbondale. Myself and a group of friends we heard about, this, the, the evening it happened, we drove out there. We probably didn't get there until midnight. There were still some people milling around the pond. The pond is actually, it was a, as I recall, was a, a strip pit, a flooded strip pit. had a column bank on one side, a high column bank, uh, from the you know what was excavated from the strip pit, as far as I, I could tell, it was probably pretty deep because these strip pits get pretty deep and it had flooded, probably hit a spring or whatever. And at any rate, I talked to some of the locals who were still there. They said a policeman did fire a shot in water, a couple of shots for whatever reason. And uh, actually, we milled around and pretty much quieted down. And the next day, uh, I, I found from, well, I don't know, from a friend I worked with who lived in Carbondale, actually, a couple months later. That the next day, supposedly a guy just happened to be driving by from Philadelphia. I don't know. You guessed at Binghamton. I don't know, but I heard Philadelphia. He just happened to be driving by, and he happened to have Scoobleek here <laughs> in this little town. He happened to be driving by, and he said, "I heard the story. I'll go in and look and see uh, what it was." He went into the water. He came back out. He said, oh, "It's only some old minor equipment." He brought out an old rusty lantern. Okay, go you go figure. An old rusty miner's lantern. The next day or later that day, uh, military showed up, horned off the area where uh, uh, there were people on top of the strip pit, wouldn't allow anybody up there to observe anything from ground level that could observe what was going on was, was, was tarped up. People were keeping away, military people kept everybody away. The one side of the strip pit was boarded by, uh, I believe it was a cemetery. We had to drive through to get to it. At any rate, and then a flatbed truck came. They went, they came in, they... Uh, came out, drove out of town with a flat, on a flatbed truck with something about the size of a mid-sized car covered by covered with a tarp, and they said it was some old mining equipment we got out of the water so nobody would get hurt swimming. <laughs> huh. And that was it. So. Wow. So just before, before we get uh, Matthew's comments on all of that, you actually heard reports that this object had been spotted in the water uh, the night it happened, and you you actually got in the car and went there that very night. Oh yeah, absolutely. We talked to the locals. They said that indeed there was a some 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 object went in the water with a light. A police officer did fire some shots for whatever reason, one or two or several shots, whatever. And uh, these locals were there on scene. And at any rate, and the other the other story I got of the, of the follow up on it was from a fellow who lived in the town and observed most of this going on. And this was somebody I had worked with. I did design engineering, and this was at a local uh, concern. We were doing what we were both doing engineering work under contract, and we discussed the, the event, and he, have, he lived in Carbondale. He had actually seen the object uh, in the sky himself. Wow. And at any rate, the, uh, so the thing was it went out on a tarp, a flatbed truck, military people, that was, wow! Actually, he was a, he was a person who lived there. And he, this is what he saw. Well, Ed, stay on stay on line. I want Eddie to uh, slick Eddie to get your information because it'd be nice to actually pass your information off to Matthew. But uh, Matthew, what do you what do you got to say about that? <clears throat> um, Ed, I think uh, what you're explaining there kind of matches up to my testimonies. Um, now, I mean, just to give you an idea here, I mean, I've had some failures. And, and a lot of people that came forward. And really what happened was this really just started as a, a school project back when I was going through graduate school. Um, I remember my uncle and my father talking about this topic. And it always, uh, even when I was a kid and then teenagers, I keep hearing about it and hearing about it. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do a research project on it. I'm going to do something in graduate school, use something as a portfolio. And it actually was a big hit. Had two other people involved with it. We wrote an article. And I still have that article, but unfortunately, I have to get it from uh, the originator who actually did start the project from our mentor. 
Um, I could pass that on to JV and Jason. Um, but the article was pretty much a 12-page document that just concluded uh, testimony surveys of what people saw, what they've explained of the situation and experience. And, Ed, what you're explaining uh, really goes into the significant eight that we've uh, collected, which we call them subjects one through eight. The reason we did that was because we never wanted to reveal an identity through research, and especially when you're under an IRB, uh, IRB approval, um, everything has to be taken under consider for ethical consideration. So, um, let me mention one thing. What you're, what you're talking you. about I have, is I up to my rest of the story because if I was to continue it, um, you're, the, the story is, is that they've actually came across a Binghamton native. He was a diver. He went by, came through the area, said he had scuba gear. The fire department approved it and said, you know, it's a resource. They allowed him in, and he pulled a lantern right out of the lake. And, of course, a lot of the people still don't buy it to this day because of, you know, scientific reason, um, some other reasons, some other details that prove the theory. Ed, Ed, did you have something to add to that? Yes. Well, again, too, the, uh, it was a big joke about the lantern. And why, why were the military people there? Why the cordon off the area? Why the flatbed truck? Why haul something out with a, covered with a tarp and tell everybody it was a piece of old mining equipment? Why, why the hubble? The whole, you know, all, now, I wasn't there for that. But the the person who I was there the night before with this all the rest of the stuff transpired that transpired the next day or the day after, and a fellow I worked with who was a credible person. He lived in Carbondale, and he and he he filled me in on the rest of it exactly as I said. That's what he told me. Okay? Yeah, Ed, Ed, hold on the line, okay, because we want to get some information from you. Um, see if uh, we can put you guys in touch, okay? So uh, we'll get Slick to pick that up. Um, so the story that Ed just told us, Matthew, about a flatbed truck with something under a tarp, did you also hear that report? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, Ed just finished my last uh, paragraph here that I would have actually <laughs> recited to you guys. Um, the factor is, is, and even through this experience, if you're going to say that they pulled a lantern out, what was the military presence there for? So I kind of leave you guys and the viewers with questions here. Um, why was the military there? Uh, what was the truck all about? What was under the tarps? And why did they tell people if you were to follow those vehicles going out, uh, they would be criminally charged? Well, yeah. And now, on top right, of now, the criminal charges at that time, what are they? I have no idea. But there was warnings from state police that were on site there and, of course, from the Carbondale Police Department and, of course, from eyewitnesses. And in the testimonies, they said that your law enforcement were enforcing that. Well, and to everybody out there listening, uh, they, now, when they say lantern, they were talking about a six-volt railroad-type lantern, correct? Like a battery-operated lantern. That's Yeah, that's the story. Um, I, I Again, I can't really believe into that because I, I just think it's a bunch of hocus-pocus. No, and why, and, why I'm saying uh, that, and why I'm saying that is because, I mean, even, even a railroad lantern, it, it might be water-resistant and so forth, but it's not waterproof. And when you drop a battery in the water, I mean, it, they tend not to really <laughs> it, it's, they tend not to really work that long. Yeah, they don't last very long. Exactly. And um, even for this, I'm, I remember uh, my uncle, um, <clears throat> he, was, he was really good with this stuff because uh, he worked um, with a lot of people in the area, with coal miners associations, like community groups. They'd go to mines, they'd discover equipment, and a lot of the stuff that they came across, they used to come across this stuff in the mines. The abandoned ones that they'd go and they'd do research, and then they'd try and give it out to the anthracite museums here within our area. And they said, you know, for a lot of that equipment back in the day, it wasn't made of cheap aluminum. It wasn't made of, uh, you know, a cheap material. It was actually made of sturdy steel or metals. And the alloy is just the way that they made things. It was more durable. That even goes back to how they made cars back in the day. I mean, it's, I mean, you look at a cheap body car compared to a, a steel body car from the 40s. Um, it was just a different make. It was a different resource at that time, and things were really more durable. But if you go back to them pulling a lantern out, again, I don't believe it was battery-powered. Um, if you're talking about pulling something out and they had a hard time and a struggle on the first attempt, maybe it was something that had something of weight. And that would match up why we had a flatbed there in Carbondale. That would match up why we had military presence. Did they pull something out bigger and just use the lantern as an excuse? Yeah, you you would have thought that they would. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Were there any photographs taken of any of this? That's the only unfortunate thing. Uh, 
I mean, going through a total, and this is what I have uh, recorded still in my Word documents, um, I have a total of 18 people. But out of those 18 people, I found the valid responses and the most significant uh, just to be around the number of eight responses. So eight out of 18 were very consistent, right on detail with one another, while others were just, I feel like these people came, they met, they wanted to make a joke. And like you guys were talking about earlier, you know, this is an area where people kind of laugh at the matter of UFOs and research. You know, you're looking at crackpots and stuff like that. Um, I mean, you kind of have to have an open mind in this subject matter. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to preach to people and tell everybody, you know, out there, believe in UFOs. You know, they are, they are real. But I'm trying to tell people through this experience with Carbondale's UFO incident, keep it open. Have an open mind. Uh, listen to what people have actually said. Listen to the eyewitnesses that were there. I mean, you're going to hear a mix of things, but most of them that I've met, they are really jiving to the story like Ed just discussed. Well, and when you say UFOs, I mean, we and we try to make sure everybody's aware of this. A UFO does not mean a spacecraft. It just means it's an unidentified flying object at that time. Once it's identified, it's not a UFO anymore. So the Absolutely. fact of the matter but is... when people hear that term, they automatically think of spacemen, little green men, and uh, radioactive material. But again, you're right. UFO is just an unidentified flying object. Could yeah. be could be something astronomical. Could be something material-wise. Matthew, the uh, Kecksburg incident, how far was that from this uh, Carbondale incident? Kecksburg would have been almost 10 years before that. Um, I believe that was 1965, and that was in December. And that's actually a pretty interesting story because a lot of people kind of compare Kecksburg's UFO incident as uh, R. Roswell, New Mexico. And if, even if you look up uh, a lot of the articles and a lot of reading on Kecksburg, that was actually spotted through multiple states. It wasn't just in Pennsylvania. People have spotted that unidentified flying object through Michigan. Um, I think another state listed in there was probably, um, I think it was New York, and I believe there was even people in Canada on the borderline there that even witnessed the object. And all that matched up to an incident that built up in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. But what, what's the geography? How, what's the distance between the two places? Well, we're talking about a significant difference there. I mean, uh, Kecksburg is literally on the southwest of uh, area of Pennsylvania. Okay. So, I mean, it's a pretty far stretch. We're talking about almost. Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've driven through. Northeast I've, to southwest. I've driven through Pennsylvania enough to know it's a long, big state to drive through. So that's oh, it it's true. It and in some and case, it's got a good coverage of potholes, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think all the Northeast states do anymore. It's it's really kind of a shame. Um, so what's your work entail now? Uh, you're still investigating this. Uh, is there any more information to uncover? Can we get to any uh, government files that, on this incident, or do they just not exist? Well, I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, you, you could find this on uh, MUFON. I've also found the incident to be recorded through... Uh, New Fork, which is the National UFO Reporting Center, um, it is archived. I mean, the incident is listed as a viable situation. I mean, it was worked on. It was it was uh, it was reported. Um, it does have a story, but um, I mean, to find out any government record, I mean, what they write it off here is, I think the the concluding point is a hoax because, and the reason they claim it was a hoax was because one of these teenage boys came forward 25 years later after the incident, and they said, it was really me and a couple friends. We dropped a lantern in there to scare my sister, which a lot of people were still not buying. I mean, you know, right? that that can make some sense if you don't have a flatbed pulling stuff away with a tarp on it and the military keeping people away. I mean, that's where the whole thing starts to take a different turn. Right. And we're talking about the size of a car here, so think about that, too. I mean, I want the viewers to also keep that in mind, that a lot of these testimonies Ed's kind of saying it's about the half uh, half size of a mid-sized car. I mean, that's a lot bigger than just a handheld rail, uh, railroad lantern powered by batteries. Well, if there's no if there's no information that we're going to be able to uh, get out of government files or any type of police records or any of this stuff, did you did you talk to or talk to anybody who had an interview with any of these officers that were there? I I did not have any luck finding anybody in law enforcement. In fact, I was hoping when we set up the project and we put the ad out for people to come forward at the library, 
Um, I would have hoped that maybe somebody on duty, you know, a retired cop would have came forward and kind of shared that experience. And at that time, I mean, I didn't even know any of the officers' names. I didn't know any of the families, maybe people that would know. And that was one thing I was also questioning about the t- in the testimonies with people that did come forward. You know, did you know any of the law enforcement? Did you grow up with them? Do you have a name? I couldn't find any solidified information on that. But to find law enforcement coming forward, I think that would have been uh, that would have been a significant piece of testimony because being that you know, could you have confirmed that you know shots were fired? Right. Uh, why were they fired? That kind of stuff. And there's no police but report. Say, it seems to me. It no, seems to me that no. It seems to me that if a, if an officer had fired shots, there's a report somewhere in in police files of that incident that would that would verify that. Do you, nothing there. Well, they the the story about this is that it's written off as a hoax. Okay. It's completely, well, it's a complete and utter hoax. And and maybe you're right. Maybe the times are different. It just seems as though if there's an incident involving shots being fired by an officer, it would be written down somewhere. But um, again, times were different. Hey, listen, we're out of time here. Um, but I know that you're in the process of writing a book about this incident. When do you expect that to be published? Well, right now, I'm constantly working on two things. I mean, I've had this project now sitting on a computer probably for about the past five and a half years. And I mean, again, this goes back into graduate school, but I really want to try and get this released, hopefully within the next, I would say probably in the next year or two at the most. All right. Matthew. And I know that it would be an interesting copy. I think it would spark a lot of interest for a lot of the locals around here. Um, there really isn't a lot of literature nor books that I have found out there that reference the Carbondale UFO. But again, I think it's one of those UFO stories that we really don't hear a lot about, you know? And I think it's got an interesting setting because you got to look at it from an open mind. You know, what do you think from the testimonies, the people, the eyewitnesses? I mean, from my standpoint, I think it's pretty consistent. I think that there's some valid points. And again, I think it's very durable. Well, Matthew, we got to have you back on at some point in the future, especially when you're closer to releasing this book so we can get more in, in detail on the story. No problem. And I would, re- and, and uh, honestly, I would get you guys a copy in a heartbeat. So as soon as I get done with this, I'm working on my dissertation right now. So I'm like right at the last final phases of it, you know? All right. Well, we'll definitely have you back on in the future. So thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us tonight. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.